Welcome to the Giles Files. I'm Nancy Giles. And I'm Nancy Wyatt. We are sort of tired out by all the politics and all that stuff that's going on in the news right now. So we decided to take a break and devote the next couple of episodes to something great and inspiring, art and artists. So this episode is called The Art of Making Art, Part 1. We've talked to two creatives that we admire, mm-hmm. and they share with us how they make their art, their process. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought it would be inspirational for any of you out there who always dreamed of living that creative life. Wait, I just have to... Wait. Okay. This is a song by Stephen Sondheim, who's an amazing composer and uh, lyricist and an artist himself, called Putting It Together from the show Sunday in the Park with George. And I'm messing around with the lyrics a little bit, Mr. Sondheim, but so did Barbara Streisand, so come on. Here we go. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution. Every little detail plays a part. Having just a vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. Putting it together, bit by bit. Uh, my name's Roz Chast. I am a cartoonist. My work primarily appears in The New Yorker. And that's about it. We met up with Roz, fresh off one of her quirky safaris along the hard scrabble streets of New York City. Born in Brooklyn, her brilliantly funny New Yorker cartoons have been making us giggle since 1978, when she was hired as only the second female staff cartoonist in the magazine's history. Check that out. Roz is the author of nine books. You know, we think there's more than that, okay? Including a graphic memoir about her parents' later years called Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? Which was a New York Times bestseller and won a prestigious National Book Critics Circle Award. Check out some of her hilarious cartoons on our Instagram page at The Giles Files Picks. That's P-I-X. Do you feel like you're defined by by that profession? Um, to some extent. I think sometimes people will say, like, oh, I bet I'm going to show up in one of your cartoons next. And, you know, maybe they will. Um, Is that yeah. how you get some of your ideas? Oh, Are yeah, they definitely. Definitely from encounters with people? Definitely. Things I overhear, I just was at a diner before this and overheard the most wonderful person behind me asking, are you my waiter? And he had this wonderful New York accent, and I almost like wanted to like turn around and like, and then it then it got better. Then it was like, oh, I want the I want the broiled salmon. No, no oil. I'm allergic to oil. And it was like you know if you wrote it out, the O Y hyphen U L oil, or O H hyphen Y U L, and then it was. Yeah, tell the guy to make it with butter. No oil. And, and it just went on and on and on. So, you know, I was just taking notes. I may not use it. And, you know, I mean, it, he seemed like otherwise a very nice man. And I hope he's not listening to this because, you know, that's all I would need is like for him to like hear this and get offended. But really, it wasn't offensive. It was just like, oh, my God, I love the way he's breaking all of these words into like multi-syllables. It was just great. And butter. 
And wonderful. It was wonderful. Is everything okay? So he did get the meal that he, he wanted. He got the meal that he wanted. Everything was good. And you take notes. Yeah, I do. I take notes. I make sketches. I love being in New York partly for that because you never, you're, you're with millions of people and you can eavesdrop on everybody and unless you're like totally naked, you know, and wearing like, or wearing a gorilla suit, like nobody's going to notice you. <laughs> and I love that. I love that. You just, if you're a writer or an artist, it's just material everywhere you go. Completely. Cartoons are uniquely New York. There's one about the subway. This, yeah. One about, I, um, Storefront that's going to be a bank in a minute. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Only women in New Yorker understand this. Yeah. Well, I grew up. I grew up mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. so it's yes. really uh, it. It makes more sense to me than any other place. Yeah. You know. Take us through a Roz Chast week. You know, Monday you've got a deadline. What happens? Uh, it's quite horrible. <laughs> it always is. It always has been. Um, there's a lot of procrastination and the checking of the email and the drinking of the coffee and they're like maybe I need a graham cracker now and uh, then I'm thirsty and I have to make more coffee and there's now I have to check my email again and you know there's just a lot of that kind of stuff and I find hair products are also a good distraction what did I put in my hair let me I might try to twist it a different way yeah, as, the, yes. as I'm stalling to oh, do things oh yeah, things. yeah. I, it's my, cuticles for me uh. cuticles it's like look at that that. that needs to be pushed back, you know, and it's it's just this like I know when I'm dealing with the nails like something bad is going on, you know, but so yeah, that's that's my hair thing. It's like look at that. I really like what is happening over there. It's I think it's I don't really know how the work gets done. I don't really understand it. I often have like I have pieces of paper. I have a box that has pieces of paper with like scraps of ideas on them because as, as the week goes on I'm jotting down ideas. I jot them down on anything that's at hand. Sometimes it's a napkin, sometimes it's a tiny torn off piece of paper, sometimes it's I, I'll be smart enough to carry a notebook with me but I don't, I'm not, not methodical. So there's scraps of paper that have ideas um, and then somehow the work gets done and in spite of me and that is I don't know is you know? it usually last minute uh, there's a uh, lot of last minute closer to Monday like yes Sunday morning is there oh, a there's level of pressure that oh yes definitely the that sparks the, the final idea I usually come to my desk on Monday morning <laughs> um, <laughs> with these ideas because the pressure helps focus me and I feel like if it's, it, there, it has to be sort of titrated exactly right, because if it's too panicky, then I can't think. Right. But if there's too much time, I also can't think. And it just, it, it's a weird thing. There's a, like a mood thing that has to happen when things are funny. And you can <laughs> sort of read it, and you can say, oh no, it'll be funnier like this. And if that's not happening, then it's really, then it's time for like more graham crackers and coffee, <laughs> you know? But luckily, the thing with cartoons that's great is that there is this deadline and there is a weekly thing. And so I think that if I didn't have deadlines, I might 
have like one cartoon that I was constantly like trying to perfect, <laughs> you know. For the last 20, 30 for years. For the last 20 or 30 years. And it it's would, not quite It's not right. quite right. And like, look at the way that hand is holding that, you know, and it's wrong and I have to like, you know, and then you could just work on one thing forever. About how many drawings do you end up submitting every week? Six or seven. Six or seven. And yeah. out of that, what is the New Yorker? They, they might take one, they might take none. Every blue moon, like maybe once a year, they'll take two. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no guarantee Two's of anything. Two's a good week. They've never taken all six or seven. Oh, golly, no. Okay. When no, you, no, no. When you yeah. create a cartoon, what comes first? The image or the thought or the joke? Or Most of the time, it's the joke. I would the say 95% mm -hmm. of the time, it's the words and the joke. And that just comes into your head or something you saw at a Yeah, okay. yeah. It's, it's an idea. And in fact, the New Yorker cartoons in the old days used to be called idea drawings, which I love because ah. that's what they are. They're ideas, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and then you draw them up and they're cartoons, but really they're ideas. Um, but every once in a while, I've had something where I'm doodling and something will come up. You know, the idea will come from the doodle. Mm -hmm. So that it happens both ways, but more words first and then... How do you know this is the one? I get sort of excited. I think that's okay, part think of it. Like a good, it's a feeling, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And I get sort of excited, and I get interested. And sometimes it makes me laugh, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> that must uh, feel good. Yeah, that is just. Um, I mean, I've had things where I can't draw because I'm laughing, <laughs> you know. But that doesn't happen like too often. Where I'm really like every time I think about it, like I have to put the pen down because I start laughing, you know. You know, you've been making your living doing this for a long time, and, and for a lot of artists, they don't make a regular living. You know, you don't get a check every right, week or anything like that. Right, that's absolutely true. How have you managed to manage your money? How have you worked out your finances? <sighs> or um, if you haven't, if it's been difficult, you know? Um, people are curious about that. I think, I wouldn't quite say that I'm frugal, but um, I do always know that there are good weeks and bad weeks and weeks where, boy, if I earn this every week, I'd be like sitting pretty. And then, <laughs> you know, the next three weeks, like no money comes in. Right. And it's just been like that from the beginning. So I think I started doing this so young, you know, that I've always kind of, it's just like gradually gotten used to that idea that there are ups and downs and that's the way it is and you know don't count your chickens right and, you know stuff like that more with Roz later and now like I love drag queens I've always loved drag what's not to love I judge people who don't love drag queens the queens that I work with are some of the most entrepreneurial business-minded ladies that I have come across Working the clubs, if you're successful working the clubs, at least in New York, and you're really working your shows and getting individual gigs, you can break 100000 That is Bailey Slevin, who is a self-described financial planner for people in the arts. She works with performers, um, directors, stage managers, nonprofit theaters, and even arts organizations. Her mission is to teach artists how to work those finances so they can live and work study, and save, whether they have a consistent income or not. For people who are freelance, um, I like to say have an uneven income, the first thing is to start saving. And it doesn't matter how much. I have a client who I met with very early in my career, a director for theater. And 
We met over uh, lunch, and she said, Bailey, I don't have any money to save. And I was like, I gotcha, I understand. What if I snuck into your house once a week and I stole $5? Would you notice? She said, no, I would buy one less coffee, probably. And I said, great, you can save $5 a week. And then when you don't notice that, save $6 a week. And when you don't notice that, save $8 a week. And she did this. We didn't talk for years, but she kept on saving. And what I found out later was when she got married, she actually used that money to buy her husband's wedding ring. $5 a week one coffee. So that's the first thing you can do and it's so easy now. You can just set up on your app that $5 a week goes into a savings account. Okay. I'm sorry, I got a little distracted when I thought she's buying his wedding ring. I didn't <laughs> I don't should, know if I approved of that. Think that. I know. <laughs> it's Everything is equal. Everything is equal these days. It was a great story and then I just went out the window on that. I was concerned for her. I, I, and I am a feminist, long-standing. I have supported myself, uh, you know, and I. Just I mean, he is... got her a lovely engagement yeah. ring that they, put did they the buy way... each other rings. Is yes. that what happened? Okay, I can breathe now. Okay. Yes, it wasn't just her kind of showing up at the wedding, like, "Baby, look what I got you. I love you so much." We'll have more from Bailey Slevin in part two of the Art of Making Art. She'll talk about how to save and invest while living your creative life. Bit by bit, putting it together. Small amounts, adding up to make a work of art. First of all, you need a good foundation. Otherwise, it's risky from the start. Takes a little cocktail conversation, but without the proper preparation. Having just a vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. The art of making art is putting it together bit by bit. My name is Jules Arthur. I'm an artist, painter, sculptor, all-around creative. Jay-Z, Essa Patha Merkerson, Senator Cory Booker, Kate Hudson, Henry Louis Gates. They all have Jules Arthur's work in their collection. We met up with Jules on a Sunday afternoon at his Midtown Manhattan studio. His cool rock star vibe, juxtaposed with his intense hypnotic portraitures, made for a really fascinating visit. Take a look at his work on our Instagram page while you listen along. Uh, Harriet Tubman is right over mm -hmm. your shoulder and I keep mm -hmm. looking at her and it's like, she keeps shooting me this look like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to cur- well, it's our podcast. <laughs> this it's like, bitch, don't fuck this up, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. like, you know, and I'm like, all right, yes ma'am, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm kind of digging it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm digging looking over at John Lewis and him just sort of looking. Mm -hmm, yeah. But the women, there's a face in particular, Peaches. Who is Peaches? She has got yes. some attitude. Definitely. Will you please tell us about Peaches? She's Peaches. one of my favorites. Yeah, mine too, oh. I know, I know. Um, that is one of four women that I painted in a series from Nina Simone's song, Four Women. There you go. And Peaches is the last woman that she speaks about. Okay. So there, you know, you know that expression. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. 
The, the lyrics of that the song you know she's a very bitter woman because of just how life has dealt her well and nina simone there's some twists and turns yes. there that are just she did not play I noticed with your work that there's a, a wonderful historical and a, like a teaching aspect to your work. It's not just visuals. You're telling stories and particular kinds of stories. Can you talk about how you got to that? Sure. Um, I am a student of history. And I think my hunger and my thirst to tell these stories is based on my own education or Furthermore, my lack of education. In what ways? Uh, these stories of African descendants or African-American history simply was not taught in my primary school or even in the high school level. Through my own studies and courses that I took in college, I started adopting these historical references to my work. For instance, I'm staring at this painting of Harriet Tubman's that's kind of a mixed media thing. Can you describe mm -hmm. that and your approach to that piece? Yeah, they're mm -hmm. very tactile. That piece, you'll find wooden slats that resemble that of railroad ties or the, the metal works of the tracks themselves. Right. Um, also, I've incorporated a, a lantern, uh, a railroad lantern of that period to indicate we are talking about the Underground Railroad. So it's a lot of symbology in that. Yeah. Metaphors. Not just straightforward painting, but materials associated with the subject matter. All the pieces are fabricated by myself through a collection of materials that I get from antique sellers online to the streets, off the streets. Yeah, you rummage around for, for stuff, do. don't you? I do. I search high and low for all these um, attributes that I put in my work. Found objects, I think Found that's a term. Objects, yeah. mm -hmm. And I love the idea of carpentry. So I built my own structures out of lumber and wood and fabricate them in a sense that, again, gives it a, a sense of time and date, a, a lot of nostalgia in my work. So I'm using woods, metals, papers, rusted metal, stitched leather. You know, I'm looking at the Jack Johnson piece right now. And so I say, well, how do I transport this viewer into the, his era, you know, 1910? And that is through this vintage leather, mm -hmm. you know, resembling the boxing gloves or the old vaudeville posters of that time. The tactile nature is really nice because you, I mean, is your work, yes, do you let people touch your work? Uh, uh oh, he's you making a face. <laughs> uh oh. You know, that's one of the big Come on, how can you dangle that, that out there and like say, don't? No, it's, it's something that comes up a lot, especially with my tactile work. Yeah. But, there is one general rule in art, and that is do not touch the art. But again, you know, you see my work, it's the first thing someone wants to do, is put their hands in it, and I get it and I understand it. But, you know, if everyone touches a piece uh, of work, then that means over time, it deteriorates over uh, at a faster rate because of the oils we have in our, in our hands, of our skin, course. so, you know. So, I don't outright invite people, yeah, go for it and touch it. But, you know, sometimes I see people's expression and enthusiasm. I say, yeah, 
Yeah, got in touch. Oh, that's nice. I was going to say, you're, uh, first I was going to accuse you of being an artistic historical tease. <laughs> but then I was thinking, again, for kids, for young people, mm-hmm. because this work has lessons wrapped up mm-hmm. in it, I wonder how they react when they see it. I can see them mm-hmm. wanting to reach out and touch the lantern and touch different things. Definitely. So, and it's something I have to let go. I had a, uh, a series based on the blues, like blues players like John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Sunhouse. And I was replicating old guitars. So I had the guitar strings in the piece. Oh, man. And of course, you know, just the, the strings are being played all day long. <laughs> and luckily, I built them sturdy enough to handle it. Um, so, like, your hands, obviously, can you, like, get cramps, your shoulders? Are you, like, mm-hmm. I would think that kind of yeah. art that you do. Can you stand when you paint? I, you... When I'm chasing a deadline, that's when you know, my, my body starts to break down. And that is through uh, a repetitious movement in, in painting. You know, having my arm in a certain position for wow. extended periods of time, having my fingers clutched around a brush for extended period of time, that will um, indeed pinch a nerve and grow up my arm, lock up my shoulder, and I down so my back. I so know the back. feeling. Oh, yeah. yeah, almost like a spasm sometimes yes, you can get. Yeah, yeah. yeah, through that repetitious movement. But I've, I've found, recently found a way to um, avoid that, and that is simply by taping my two fingers, the ring finger and the pinky finger together. <laughs> and by doing that, it releases the tension in my hand. It doesn't allow my hand to curl and lock up. It forces me to keep my hand limp as I paint. The ring finger and the pinky finger. Exactly. Just lightly that? tape that. It was, I figured it out by what part of my hand was going numb. <laughs> it had gotten to that degree, you know. I know. These fingers would just go dead. Mm. And it would start from there and grow up. I said, well, wait a minute. And, uh, you know, I, I noticed that the fingers were curling under and just locking, just the tension of it. Wow. And, by, and by releasing that, it released all my muscles growing up, growing up the arm. This may be something you'll want to patent. Yeah. You know, yeah, get yeah. a patent on, you know, the Jules Arthur yeah. finger lock yes, device. Yes. Because I'll get that sometimes. I'll get on a writing deadline, and I've started mm-hmm. to experience these things where it's, suddenly my hands are like, what's that, the Vulcan thing? Yes. They'll yes. separate like that, and I'll mm-hmm. have to. So I'm going to have to try that yeah, trick. Do it. You know, to you artists out there, just by a, a simple roll of tape, a, a $4 roll of tape, <laughs> you can save yourself in chiropractic fees and doctor fees just by Dad. taping your last two fingers together and you could paint on to to wish. Do deadlines help you get things done? They do. Do I find that I do better under that under those circumstances, under that pressure. It pushes me in ways. If I have um, as much time as I want on a piece, mm, the the piece doesn't have as much fire. What happens is I, I tend to, I'm juggling um, projects, a number of projects at a time. So I'll hold off on a piece. And by doing so, it limits the time I have on something. Therefore, creating that, that pressure cooker where I know that certain artist in me will come out. Mm. Mm. That's cool. That, I'm, I'm taking notes on that. I might try <laughs> to do that myself. Yeah. You're wonderfully talented and at a level where you're making a living mm-hmm. what would you say to artists who might be as uh, you know equally talented and not at your level yeah. you know it, 
I'm good. Why? Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. Um, I would say to the artist and to um, art programs, teach business, teach courses that uh, teach you how to navigate the art world, business. Um, take speech classes, you know, debate classes, you know, how to uh, own your your um, your voice communicate to project right communicate these are things that are really going to allow you to excel in the art world because you're in these rooms where there's other artists collectors uh, museum uh, directors and you really need to be up front you know not in their face but just present and announce yourself mm -hmm. meet and greet them and it's that constant repetition of uh your presence in their eye that locks on and gains their attention or trust. Focus in on that aspect as much as their, their practice in their studio. You know, learn these attributes outside of your creative aspect. You know, the business yeah. end of it. Do you feel defined by your work? Yes. Um, my artwork always touches upon um, the African diaspora, our African-American history entails. So some people say just the presence of that alone is controversial or you know, provocative. I don't agree. You know, we're yeah. just telling American stories. You know, black history is American history. So I am quickly defined through that lens. You know. Um, it's, but sometimes it's a double-edged sword. What uh, would be an example of um, a negative aspect of being categorized? Um, that is being forced to fit into a box. Yes, like there is, as if there is one black experience, exactly. period. Yes, and exactly. you're breaking those boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yep, and that is my goal, to say we are not this downtrodden people. We are a glorified people. There are moments throughout history that are quintessentially special, and I want to bring that to the surface. I feel spoiled because looking at your work, it's so exciting, even though you can't touch, but it's so exciting, the dimensionality of it, mm -hmm. that I, you know, looking at flat paintings, paintings alone, mm -hmm. even of very notable people, it wouldn't have the same impact on me. Mm -hmm. You've changed me. Yeah. <laughs> and I've done my job. You know, it is, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an illusion that the artist is doing here. You know, just like you said, it's a two-dimensional surface. And the way you're sitting there describing it has is, is pulled you in in such a way. You know, that's, that's a pretty magical thing. The art of making art is putting it together bit by bit. I, I grew up loving sitcoms and loving comedians, loving people like Mike Nichols and Elaine May and, you know, uh, Richard Pryor. And I love comedy. And my writing professors at college, their idea when they saw me, a black woman, was, oh, we want you to write like Alice Walker and Toni Morrison. And it was that, you know, oh, honey, oh, not to stereotype, but that wasn't my voice. I didn't grow up having uh, been a victim of abuse or anything like that. I was like always looking for the, the humor in the situation. And that kind of conflict really made me stifle my voice. I didn't know what my truth was. 
Navraz Chaz had a similar experience trying to find her voice. She went to Rhode Island School of Design, which is called RISD. Uh, when I went to RISD, it was the first time that I ever thought that, you know, I, I was really bad and um, that I sucked and that my drawings were terrible and that also cartooning was stupid and I shouldn't do it. And so all of this at the place this, that you chose to go study. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but, you know, it had a sort of weird silver lining in that, for one thing, it was the first time in my life I'd ever been with people where everybody was the artist in the class. There were people who were incredible. And not only just with drawing, but just conceptually, you know, they were so far ahead of me. Because also I had gone to like public school, you know, and public school is a really different thing oh, from, yeah. you know, a private school where you're talking about like Helen Frankenthaler and picture planes and stuff like that. I didn't know anything, you know. I started out in graphic design, which I was totally unsuited for, because that really is about neatness and straight lines and minimalism and technical. and technical and all of those things I was the opposite of. Right. So then I switched to illustration, which was okay, but a little bit boring. And I was living with painters and I loved hearing them talk about art with a capital A. And I just thought that's, even though I was a terrible painter and not even really wanting to paint, somehow I felt like that was real art. Um, my, by my senior year, I had sort of secretly gone back to drawing cartoons, but my teachers weren't interested. No. No, not at all. I had shown one of them a sketchbook, and he was so dismissive that I got kind of... Oh, and also when I was at RISD, there was a, a magazine uh, started by... This was probably even worse. Uh, there was a cartoon magazine that was all boys. It was called Fred. And um, the, I submitted... Um, some cartoons and they were all rejected and I remember I cried I cried like a little girl and it was really hurtful and I have to say the fact that like none of these boys ever became professional cartoonists if you think that doesn't give me great pleasure you know you're, you you don't know me <laughs> right you know on. every day I think none of them, because I would have heard, maybe they're illustrators, I don't know what they're doing, but none of them became cartoonists. And it's like, yes, yeah, yes, I win, you lose, goodbye. Revenge is sweet. It is sweet. Isn't it? It is sweet. And sometimes it's necessary. Not that, you know, you carry it around with you every second of the day, but that you know it was important and you, that you settled that score. If you didn't do this kind of work, what would you do, do you think? I never had a plan B. Uh, I, I don't, I, I don't know. I think I, I really might be, I don't know. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I, this is all I ever wanted, want to do and ever wanted to do. I, ne I never, I can't even imagine doing something else. To someone that really wanted to do this kind of work that you thought had talent, would you, give them, what kind of advice would you give them? If you can do something else, you should do that. You know, don't do this. This is like really, it's a lot of re rejection and you have to really want to do it. This, is, this has to be what you, and, and maybe you can't do anything else. I mean, that's how I felt. I felt like this is all I do. Mm -hmm. You have to really want to do this and you have to listen to what, it sounds so corny to say, what your heart is saying, you know? 
and like when you're when you're working like you know do it to how you want it to be you know don't let some teacher who told you do it this way overrule how you want to do it stick to your guns you know if somebody says you know it would be much better if you know you made your drawing style a lot more like so and so's you know which which happened when I was starting out like don't no can I show her this yes do you you have to this this is I oh I peed my we pants. <laughs> okay <laughs> oh, it's good. one of our all-time favorites oh my god I mean it was so good that I took a fo I photoshopped it and sent it to my boy we sent yeah. it ricocheted oh my god laughing Oh, I'm I glad. think we read it over twice. We did. Oh, this glad. is a cartoon called Top 10 Dog Hits of All Time. We will show this we'll on show our Instagram. Okay. Tell us how you got the idea for that. Uh, I, I, you know, again, it's really <laughs> hard to kind of say. It's, it's, dogs are kind of funny. The way dogs kind of, I don't know, they like smell each other's butts. <laughs> There is a kind of radar to that butt yeah, smelling, you know. It's just wild. <laughs> it's like, it just cracks me up. But that's, you know, that's dog life, I guess. You know, it's not funny to them. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's serious business. It is serious yeah, business. Yeah, so yeah, dogs seem very funny to me. And now. Here's a little musical interlude from one of our favorite artists, the inventive and creative Carmen Borgia. He's an award-winning sound designer, composer, and he is spiffy-lific on the ukulele. I host this variety show in New York called The Mosquito that has storytellers and comedians and musicians, all kinds of fun folks, and we all get a chance to work our craft on stage. Carmen, and what I like to call his Carmen Borgia Orchestra, they are the house band at the Mosquito. And we love us some Carmen. And recently, he surprised us with a catchy ditty about a favorite vegetable or fruit, depending on your predilection. Written by Guy Clark, here's Homegrown Tomatoes. Hit it! There's nothing in this world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. Up in the morning, out in the garden, pick yourself a ripe one, don't get a hardened. Plant them in the springtime, eat them in the summer. All winter without them is a culinary bummer. I forget all about the sweating and the digging every time I go out and pick me a big one. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What would life be without homegrown tomatoes? There's only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. And that's for sure But there's nothing a homegrown tomato won't cure Put them in a salad, put them in the stews Make your very own tomato juice Eat them with the eggs, eat them with the gravy Eat them with the beans, bitter or navy Put them on the side, put them in the middle Homegrown tomatoes on a hot cake griddle Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes what would life be without homegrown tomatoes? There's only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. If I could change this life I lead, well, I'd be Johnny Tomato Seed. Cause I know what this country needs. 
homegrown tomatoes every yard you see. When I die, don't bury me in a plot or a cemetery out in the garden. Would be much better. Well, I could be pushing up homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What'd life be without homegrown tomatoes? There's only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What'd life be without homegrown tomatoes? There's only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love. And homegrown tomatoes. Woohoo! Common boys, ya, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's our show. Thanks to our guests, Roz Chast and Jules Arthur. Check out both of their websites and Instagram pages for more information and to see their fantastic works. Special thanks to Bailey Slevin. You'll hear more of Bailey on our next episode, The Art of Making Art Part 2. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt, produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt, recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Giles Files, okay? Woo! <laughs>